You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Sharon Nelson, and I am a past president of the Virginia State Bar. Within the context of the Law Practice Division, I serve as the vice chair of its Ed Board, and I also serve on the Legal Cybersecurity Task Force, as well as ABA SCOTUS. Today's show is being recorded on location during the ABA mid-year meeting at the George R. Brown Convention Center in downtown Houston, Texas. We're here to cover this event and its highlight for you, our listeners. Joining me now is William Hubbard, the president of the ABA from Columbia, South Carolina. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sharon, for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here at the mid-year meeting in Houston. We're glad to be here. We have about 3,500 lawyers who've convened for about 760 programs, so a lot of energy here, and we're excited about it. There is a lot of excitement and a lot of wonderful programs. I'm looking forward to some of them myself. Before we get started, let me ask you about your professional career. You obviously are working in Columbia, South Carolina, and what kind of law do you practice and who are you with? I'm with Nelson Mullins, Riley, and Scarborough. I joined the firm in 1978, and I was the 16th lawyer, and we now have over 500 lawyers from Boston through Nashville, through Atlanta, down into Jacksonville. Is this taking away your time from your practice just a little? <laughs> please, please don't tell my partners how much I've been traveling this year. <laughs> oh, heck, it's in the vault, William. In the vault. <laughs> Thank okay. You. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the issues that the ABA is, is facing this year and for many years to come. And, and I think one of the most important is the future of legal services. And you have a commission studying that. Can you tell me some more about that? Yes. Uh, we all know that about 80% of the legal needs of the poor in this country are not being met. And more and more persons of moderate means are looking for different ways to have their legal needs met, which means that we have to change the model. One lawyer, one case, very labor-intensive, often with delays, is not what the public expects. We all shop differently. We invest differently. We get our news differently. If we're feeling poorly, we look on the Internet to see what it might be before we actually consult a doctor. The world's changed, and we have been a little behind in looking at innovative ways that we can reach more people and deliver legal services to solve their needs in a cost-effective way. So we... What we've tried to do with this commission is bring lawyers, judges, regulators, small firm lawyers, large firm lawyers, academics together to look at comprehensive solutions, innovative solutions to develop new platforms for the delivery of legal services that will allow us to meet that unmet need. Uh, We've all known, despite so much effort by pro bono and public service lawyers to meet the legal needs of those who need those services the most, We've not met that need, and we need to be more innovative and more creative. We've had a series of grassroots meetings across the country. I spoke last week to the Conference of Chief Justices of the United States, and more and more the chiefs understand this issue. They want to get behind uh, efforts in their various states to try to do something to fundamentally bridge this gap. Well, I know we have a similar commission in the state of Virginia, and I think probably every state has a similar commission by now, so it's it's a tough job. Well, we do have access to justice commissions, but what we're trying to do here is change the focus of those access commissions. Not necessarily those have been focused on urging more lawyers to devote more pro bono hours. We're looking to not just promote more pro bono work, but more effective and more efficient pro bono representation by taking advantage of new technologies. Well, that, that's a great goal, and I, I hope you succeed. Thank you. Here, here we are in Houston, and certainly Texas has its fair share of immigration issues. How has the 
ABA gotten involved with those issues? Well, I've been to Texas twice uh, in the last six months to get a first-hand look at some of the issues uh, involving immigration. First came uh, back in July. We visited San Antonio, went out to Lackland Air Force Base where a lot of the children were being held. We also visited uh, some of the uh, shelters. And uh, what you see there was an influx, a 77% increase in one year of unaccompanied minor children coming across the border to escape traumatic conditions uh, in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, where uh, rule of law has broken down and gangs have really taken over large swaths of those countries. We've put into place an, a working group on representing unaccompanied minor children. The immigration judges themselves tell us they have to have this kind of support there's such a language barrier, they, the judges don't have the time or the ability to gather the facts necessary to make the right decisions. So they need lawyers to represent the children so that the right facts can be put before the judge so the judge can make a proper determination of whether a child should be granted asylum, should be granted some temporary reprieve from deportation, or whether the child should be sent back. So even here, we've been engaged in a number of training exercises, and even in connection with this mid-year meeting here in Houston, we we're having a training session, and we're calling it Immigration 101, to try to expose lawyers who are good advocates to some of the some of the guidelines and laws that affect having a good hearing or being allowed to represent an unaccompanied minor children in a proper way. It's it's a great need in our country, and it's a humanitarian need. I'll tell you, William, this is one of the things that makes me proudest to be an ABA member is to see our involvement in efforts like this that are so sorely needed, and and we're doing our best, I think, to make that situation better. And I'm very proud of the ABA for doing that. And I'm also proud of the Family Law Section of the American Bar Association, which just yesterday committed twenty five thousand dollars to this effort. And we're oh, going back before wonderful. the uh, Board of Governors tomorrow to seek some additional funding so that we can even expand these efforts. Oh, that's just great. And it, let me make one point. This is not just for lawyers in Texas. Right. Once the children come across the border, they're typically sent to a sponsor or a sponsoring organization in other parts of the country. So this is a need wherever you are. And if you're interested in it, please contact the American Bar Association, and we will make sure you get the training materials so that you can help out and be a pro bono advocate for these unaccompanied minor children. You know, another issue that's caught everybody's attention, and particularly in the last year or so, is domestic violence. What are we doing there? Well, the American Bar Association has been at the forefront of reform efforts on domestic violence for over 20 years. 20 years ago, ABA President Roberta Cooper Ramo, the first woman ABA president, established the Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence. It was coincident with the passage of the first Violence Against Women Act. We've been working to try to provide more pro bono representation to train more lawyers to be able to secure uh, civil protective orders uh, against stalkers and domestic partners who might be intent on doing bad things. And, and obviously with some of the issues with prominent actors and athletes over the last year, it certainly brought this issue to the forefront, I think, to a larger number of Americans. But the problem is acute, and it's a big, big problem. One out of three women will be victims of domestic violence in their lifetime. 15.5 million children per year witness acts of domestic violence, which causes psychological and other types of scarring and developmental issues down the road. It's a crisis in this 
country. Uh, even one out of seven men are victims of some kind of domestic violence over their lifetime. And it's gratifying to see that this has become a bipartisan issue. You see Republican Attorney General in various states, my own state in South Carolina, they're seeking to really do something about this problem. It's something that deserves all of our attention, and the ABA has been at it for 20 years, and we're optimistic that we can do what it takes to train more lawyers to represent victims. We also have passed a, a resolution in our House of Delegates last year to help employers help their employees when they're victims of domestic violence, putting some protocols in place and providing more awareness to employers so they can recognize and maybe help employees who come in and have a problem. Well, that's yet an, another wonderful effort. Um, let me ask you one more set of issues and maybe on criminal justice issues. What are we doing there? Well, I think we can see um, through the reactions in Ferguson and New York and Cleveland this year that the criminal justice system, they're, they're a number of Americans have, have essentially lost their trust in some of the processes in our criminal justice system. One thing that's a fact and proven by empirical studies is there are parts of the criminal justice process that are affected by implicit or unconscious bias, both at the police level and at the prosecutorial level and at the jury selection process and in sentencing. The ABA, Justice Anthony Kennedy in 2003, called this to the attention of the American Bar Association. We put together a task force then to look at these over-incarceration, disparities in incarceration, mandatory minimum sentences. And we've been working at this uh, since 2003 in a very deliberate way, and we have good policies on it. We will continue to try to drive those reform efforts to the front. We will continue to try to educate policy makers about the problems we have in our country. One of the acute issues in our nation has been the over-incarceration of Americans. We incarcerate more people than any country in the world. One out of 99 adults in this country is incarcerated, and certainly it has a disparate impact on persons of color, especially African-American males. We believe there progress can be made. Um, we're very focused on the issue. I've been in conversations with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund about doing some joint programming, and so we hope to continue to work on this issue, and we're also focused very much on an issue that most people don't think about, and we call it the collateral consequences of incarceration. Once you're incarcerated, you've served your sentence, the penalties often continue. If you're restricted from getting certain types of employment or certain housing opportunities or student loans and those kinds of things... The American Bar Association has identified over 40,000 laws on the books, both at the federal level and at the state level, which prohibit people from successfully reentering society. Now, having said that, some of those laws obviously are needed to protect the public from certain types of criminal behavior. Uh, I think those examples are obvious, but if someone is a nonviolent felon and they've been incarcerated, and they've shown no propensity for violence but maybe had a drug problem or, or something along those lines, then maybe we ought to be focusing on doing away with some of the laws that prohibit their successful reentry into society and gives them a chance to be more productive and less of a burden on the taxpayers. Well, and also they often leave families, you know, so the children are without their fathers or mothers, more often fathers, and that has a, a huge collateral effect that we need to do something about. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. That's a big part of what we're trying to do here. The over-incarceration issue is something that we should be able to really make progress on in this country. When you 
you have the American Civil Liberties Union and the Heritage Foundation agreeing that we've over-incarcerated our population, and you see reforms in states like Texas and in South Carolina, we need to accelerate these efforts. We really need to work on making sure that we're not incarcerating people who are nonviolent and who don't have the propensity for violence that we give them alternatives to imprisonment. Maybe they need rehabilitation, training, education. And in some states, because of sentencing reform efforts, we flip the percentages of nonviolent to violent prisoners. And I think it saves a lot of money for the taxpayers, and it's better for society generally. And more specifically, it's the right thing to do if we can help people rehabilitate. And these sentencing reform efforts even though we're incarcerating fewer people now in the states that have adopted these sentencing reforms, the other beneficial effect is the recidivism rate is going down. So we're just being a lot smarter in in some states about who we sentence and why we sentence them and for how long. Mandatory minimums and other things have, have proven not to work. I agree completely. You know, a lot of the folks who are listening to us are not ABA members. So would you tell them why they should be? Because I know you and I have found a tremendous home in the ABA and a lot of value there, but some people don't see the value or understand the value. So can you kind of give them some encouragement? Well, 750 programs at just this one meeting, I think, says a lot about how you can be involved in the ABA and be a better lawyer by learning and networking and being exposed to cutting-edge issues. The sections of the the American Bar Association. We have 28 sections and divisions. Many of them are in specific practice areas. I've recently visited the tax section and the antitrust section. They're having record numbers of attendees attend their spring meetings for education purposes. You can get business referrals from knowing people through the American Bar Association, but also it's very important for the rule of law in our nation to have a strong unified voice on the bigger justice issues. And don't forget the ABA is the accrediting body for law schools. We do the peer review for federal judges, and we also are the group that promulgates the model rules of professional conduct. So we serve vital functions for the American justice system and lawyers throughout America, and we need their support. The more members we have, the stronger our voice is, and the more we can do to make our justice system more just, and the more opportunities we can provide for lawyers. Now, if somebody were interested after listening to us talk today and they wanted to find out about joining the ABA, how would they do that? Well, they could simply go to the ABA website. It's very easy to sign up online, and we'd be happy to have them as members. We would indeed. I know we're all, you and I are always encouraging We're folks always to recruiting. We're, we're always, always recruiting. recruiting. It's part of the job. That's right. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about the mid-year meeting and then the upcoming annual meeting? Yes. Uh, I may have mentioned that we have about 3,500 lawyers here at the mid-year meeting, about 760 programs. We also, our House of Delegates meets here, which is, our, again, our policy-making body, 550 lawyers from all over the country. The mid-year meeting is the smaller of our two meetings. The annual meeting attracts about 7,000 lawyers. That'll be in Chicago this summer. Again, at these meetings, we have education programs, training programs, networking opportunities, governance, the Board of Governors of the ABA, which administers the association's finances and programs, is also meeting here for two days. So it's it's quite a gathering of lawyers and judges. And I think the beauty of it is it gives lawyers and judges and academics a chance to be together and learn from each other and not be segmented just in their practice area with people who do just what they do. Well, I know both of us have had a a wonderful run in, in the ABA and enjoyed it 
tremendously. So it's a great honor for us to have you here with us. Did I fail to ask you a question that you wish I'd asked? No, I think you've uh, pretty much covered the waterfront, but I think it's the obligation of all of us as lawyers to really try to do something to make the legal system better, and that's what the ABA is focused on. And we also have a real keen interest in diversifying our profession. The policies that we develop are not sustainable if they don't have an inclusive input. And so the ABA is very conscious of that, and we're always actively recruiting women and lawyers of color. And we're an expansive organization. We're a welcoming organization, and we hope you'll go online and join. Yeah, it's a very inclusive organization, and all are welcome, and that is really true. We've done made great strides in diversity, um, and it's not the old ABA. Um, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> we have come a long way. I, I want to thank you very much. It's always such an honor to, to particularly to have the ABA president here. So thank you, William, for joining us Thank today. you for the opportunity, Sharon. It's been wonderful visiting with you. And if there should be any feedback anybody ever wants to provide to you, and I'm not asking you to give your email address out, but how, how would they get feedback to you if they wanted some input, wanted to say something? How would they do uh, that? Well, I do have a web address at the ABA as ABA president. That works. That works. <laughs> I haven't found that one yet. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Sharon Nelson. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Sharon. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.